We're continuing on in our sermon series on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And this morning we're thinking about a profound statement that changes all our lives. Of Jesus saying to the second criminal, truly, today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. And it all hinges on the cross. It all hinges on the cross. I, I remember I was, in a, uh, I was helping a Catch the Fire Leaders Conference. And during one of the sessions, we were encouraged to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord to hear if he had anything to say to us individually. And I remember I went to this place uh, within the sanctuary at Holy Trinity. And as I waited on the Lord, he gave me this vision. And this vision, in this vision, I saw Jesus coming and giving me a scroll, which was of greatest importance. And uh, I was fascinated by this. And, and this was, I felt that this was a scroll that, it had a message on it, and this wasn't just for that day. It was for the rest of my life that I was going to speak about this the rest of my life. And so I was intrigued. I was thinking, well, what is this revelation? Is it something new that I haven't heard from, that I haven't seen in the Word of God? And I was intrigued. I was like a little child, like, Whoa, what is in this scroll? And as I received the scroll from Jesus as I opened it, the message was this. The cross. The cross. John Stott wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoings and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserved. But he did not because he loved us. He came after us in Christ. He pursued us even when the desolate anguish of the cross, where he bore our sin, guilt, judgment, and death. It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by the love like that. Stott makes clear that the vital, the vital importance of the cross of Christ, and without the cross of Christ, we will perish in our sins. The cross reminds us of God's love and action for us in Christ, and it compels us. To go into the world and in his power be witnesses of the good news, which at the center is the cross. And as we continue in this sermon series about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, this morning we explore two very different responses to Jesus from the criminals that hung either side of him and the glorious words that Jesus spoke to the repentant criminal. Truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So before we look at this, let's get a, a bit of context of what surrounds us. Let's turn to chapter 23 of Luke in our, in our Bibles. Uh, if you've got that on your phone or if you've got it in, on, in paper form, let's turn to that. And I'm going to just unpack a wee bit of what happens in the lead up to this next saying of Jesus. Now, two other men, Luke says, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now, Luke, unlike the other Gospels, uses the place called the Skull to describe where Jesus is crucified instead of Golgotha. And I wonder if he does this because there was an old Jewish tradition that believed Adam was buried in Jerusalem at the place where Jesus was crucified. So Jesus is crucified over the tomb of Adam. 
Jesus then brings life into the world where Adam brought death and sin, which Paul highlights in Romans, doesn't he? And he said, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people through Adam, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people through Jesus. It's just a little thing that we might not see, but it's the richness of the gospel of Luke as a doctor, as someone who liked putting in these little facts. And Luke continues with the first saying of Jesus, which Dave preached about last week. And I'd really encourage you to listen to this. Jesus said in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He's praying. And that prayer is an echo of Isaiah 53, 12. Where it says this, therefore I will give him a portion amongst the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgressions. So in that moment, God's word that was spoken through Isaiah is fulfilled. Jesus is both numbered with the transgressors, the two criminals hanging either side of him, But in that moment, he makes intercession for the world. And as he dies, he provides forgiveness, which he prays for on the cross. For by his own death, forgiveness was offered to all. Luke then describes further some of the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Psalm 22. This is going to come up. So we see that there are two parts of Psalm 22 that are fulfilled in verses 34 to 37 of Luke. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now notice what it says in Psalm 22, in verses 16 to 18. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots on my garment. See how the Old Testament, as we read the Old Testament, it's so important that we read the Old Testament because we then see what Jesus is fulfilling. We go, oh, there it is in Psalm 22. There it is in Isaiah 53. And then... Later, earlier on in Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So it's so important, church, for us to be in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. To see what what God promises that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It helps us to stand in awe when we read the Psalms and go, wait a minute, that's talking about Jesus. When we read Isaiah, that's fulfilled as Jesus dies on the cross, as he is crucified in between the transgressors. And then another little point, Luke tells us in verse 88 why Jesus is crucified. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. If you've, you might have seen above a crucifix or a stained glass or uh, a, a symbol, you often see those, those words, I-N-R-I, which represent Jesus Nazareth Rex Inodorum, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the fact this is mentioned is important because it tells us why Jesus was being crucified. Because he was claimed to be the king. But if we read 
the Old Testament prophecies, we see that he is the king. Jesus is his coming. Even on the cross, he is the king of kings. He's fulfilled what was promised. So we see even in the run-up so much richness about the life of Jesus and what he fulfills of the Old Testament, both in the, in the, in, in the prophets and in the Psalms. But let's now move on to the criminals and see their different response. One of the criminals, verse 39, who hung there heard insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Some things to point out about the two criminals before we look at them individually. The two criminals are both suffering the pain of crucifixion here. They're both guilty of crime. We see that in the conversation. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. And just to note what they've seen and heard, the criminals have seen the sign over Jesus' head, the king of the Jews. They heard the words, Jesus, speak out, Father, forgive them. And they're both desperate desire to be saved from this humiliating and, and painful death of crucifixion. So let's now look at the first criminal who hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. In these words, we see how blind this first criminal is, the condition of his heart, and how he desperately needs Jesus. He's guilty. He's suffering because of what he's done. And yet he joins with the crowds and he hurls insults at Jesus. He taunts Jesus with, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. You know, all he's really interested in is being saved from his own death. Saving his own skin of treating Jesus like a get-out-of-jail card. There's no intention of making Jesus his king. All we see is anger, an arrogant heart, and a cold heart towards Jesus. I think that's how many relate to God when suffering interrupts their life. I've seen that. I've sat with people in hospices who don't have faith, and they just... It's maybe the first time they've mentioned God and they rile at God. They shout something like, you know, why am I in this? This is so unfair. Get me out of this and I'll do this. That's so often the thing you hear with people. You know, if you do this, I'll, you know, if you save me from the owl, it's giving God an ultimatum. But just like the criminal, there's no understanding of their brokenness or their sinfulness or their need for Jesus. There's no understanding of their need to repent, to say sorry, to turn back to Jesus. Their interest is only in worshiping themselves. I was once that criminal at a point in my life. After a friend's tragic death, I gave God an ultimatum, demanding that he show himself to me. Do this for me, show me you're real, and I'll live my life for you. I still remember that moment. I had no understanding of why Jesus hung on that cross for me. I had no understanding of my sinfulness. I just demanded in anger that Jesus would bring comfort to my soul. I was treating God just like that criminal of a get-out-of-jail card. And when he didn't respond, I reacted anger and walked away from him. 
I'm so glad that in that moment that he didn't answer my ultimatum and that he waited until I knew what it, was mean, what it meant that I needed Jesus when I knew how sinful I was and how broken I was years later. When I came to the end of myself and realized the blessing that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first criminal sim simply sees Jesus as a way of getting him out of that moment, but no more, and is angry in the midst of all this. And then we turn to the second criminal. Let's just be clear here. It was just as bad as the first criminal. Even though Luke doesn't record it, Matthew does. And he records that at the first moment of the crucifixion, both the criminals are taunting Jesus. They're insulting him. Yet there's something that whilst this thief is on the cross, changes. He has some kind of revelation of who Jesus is. Verse 40 but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Notice the first thing that we see the second criminal say or do. After this revelation, he rebukes his fellow criminal. He does not join in with the crowd, insulting Jesus or treating him like a get-out-of-jail card. But he rebukes him. Next, we see him say, don't you fear God? This revelation has opened his eyes to who, who Jesus is. The criminal is, knew he was going to stand before God, and he knows it's not going to go well for him because he knows he's guilty. In that revelation, his heart is revealed to him, his rebellious heart before God. And in these words, we see a penitent heart. We see this very clearly in what he says next to his fellow criminal. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. The time for hiding the state of his heart was over for this criminal. In the presence of Jesus, he tells it as it is. He realizes that he's done wrong and is receiving the just reward for the way he's lived his life. This criminal was not only feeling the pain of crucifixion, which he deserved, but also the pain of his sin and his suffering and his brokenness. And he lays down any pretense of self-righteousness in this moment. The criminal then goes on to make a statement about Jesus that others have too in the Gospels. But this man has done nothing wrong. Robert Stein comments on this verse, along with Pilate's threefold witnesses to Jesus' innocence, which has just happened, and Herod's witness saying he's done nothing wrong, we now have the witness of this criminal. Shortly we'll have the witness of the centurion. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. He was good. He was sinless. He was a speaker of truth. And yet he was being crucified. Why? Jesus was crucified to save us. Because we're like that criminal. He died on the, our death on the cross. He took our place. Do you see what Jesus did for you? It's prophesied through Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet he, we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crossed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
In this astonishing act of love, we see Christ take the penalty of our sin, our death, our judgment, so that we, the guilty ones, could be freed, that we could be forgiven and be given a righteousness that wasn't ours. Jesus had done nothing wrong. So this criminal who's shown the fear of God, admitted his guilt, accepts the justice being paid out to him, and acknowledges the innocence of Jesus, now says something to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The two criminals' words to Jesus, both are for salvation, but how different they are. The first criminal, one joining in with the insults of the crowd, says to Jesus, Are you the Christ? Save yourself on us. But look at the second criminal. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't just have a revelation of his sin, but he had a revelation of who Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he's the king, and we'll see the power of the king in these next moments. The meaning of that word remember is something we don't get. When God remembers, particularly in the Hebrew, it's tied with action. I wonder if any of us have forgotten an anniversary or a birthday. It doesn't go well for that person who's forgotten the act or even who's remembered and hasn't acted. That isn't going to get you out of anything. Jesus, a Jewish scholar named Sumer, writes this. In the Bible, remembering, particularly on the part of God, is not the retention or recollection of a mental image, but a focusing upon the object of memory that results in action. So if we take Noah, for example, in Genesis we see that God remembered Noah and the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. So in other words, God remembered Noah by doing something, by sending a wind which pushed back the waters, and they subsided. Remembrance, therefore, when it's noted here, equals a divine action of mercy. It means God is going to do something. God just doesn't remember, but he also acts. The criminal is asking Jesus not just to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, but to bring him into the kingdom, his kingdom as, his, as the king, to save him. How did Jesus respond? Nothing is said to the first thief. Just silence. There's no hope of salvation for him as he's joined with the insults of the crowd toward Jesus. He's using Jesus as a get-out-of-jail card. But to the second criminal, he said something. Something that would have probably taken the the second criminal's breath away. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is nothing but God's victorious grace on display. The man was was as much a sinner as the other criminal, but the difference is he knew he was a sinner and he needed a savior, he needed a king that had the power and the authority to do something about his situation. There's no time for good works for this criminal, which reminds us that we too are saved, not by our works, but by God's grace. 
Jesus brings what must have been immense hope and peace to this man as he hung in absolute suffering upon the cross that today you will be with me in my kingdom. Not tomorrow, not next week, not after a lot of soul sleep, but today. And Piper states that Jesus was basically claiming today the spirit of Jesus and the new spirit of the thief would be in union in paradise. The promised word would be without delay. Now this is immense blessing to anyone who has trusted Jesus Christ and is facing death. We will be with Christ when we die. Hallelujah. Piper wrote, but in all of this, the one thing that Jesus chose to mention to this repentant thief on the cross, if you can, can only say one thing, what would you say? You will be with me today. You have to love and admire Jesus a lot for that, to be a solace when you leave this life behind. It reminds me of that great spiritual, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, give me Jesus. As we each approach our own death, and we will, these words are an incredible hope to us. One author said, not unconsciousness in the grave, but with Christ in paradise is what awaits every believer at death. Let me say it again. Hallelujah. The only thing, the only way this criminal got into heaven was because the king of the kingdom. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the only reason he got there. It's because of the grace of God. Alistair Begg preached a great sermon where he imagines the criminal getting to heaven and uh, an angel asking him, uh, well, how did you get here? Uh, the criminal said, well, I don't really know, to be honest. The angel's confused, so he goes and gets his supervisor. The supervisor says to the man, well, we need to ask you a couple of questions because we're a bit confused while you're here. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it, said the man. Well, how about the doctrine of Scripture? He looks bemused. So how did you get here, the angel says. Well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer any of us have. By God's amazing grace. We're not saved by good works but saved by Christ's work for us on the cross. I don't know if you've still got your cross. Malcolm gave it to us all, and I keep it in my pocket. Why? To remember that when I fail, it's only by the grace of God. When I succeed, it's only by the grace of God. If you've put it down, why not put it back in your pocket? It's an amazing reminder of God's love for you. But what does paradise mean? Because that's important. What is Jesus promising this thief? Well, in the Greek, this word, paradisos, which is a Persian word, means paradise, a place of blessedness from the base meaning of gardens, we see, which is used in Genesis 2.8, where it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Howard Marshall writes that paradise is used as a symbol of heaven 
which we see in 2 Corinthians 12 and Revelation 2.7. Jesus is using it in this way of heaven. Jesus is telling the criminal that today you'll be with me in heaven. Today you'll be with me in my kingdom in paradise, in my presence. You're not going to suffer some soul sleep and have to wait. No, today you'll be with me. Once again, we see the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ, as the King of kings hangs on the cross. And the grace of God is displayed in his words. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So how do we respond to this amazing truth that Jesus speaks to us as criminals? With rejoicing. With rejoicing. With hallelujahs. Not with, oh, praise the name of the Lord. It's like, wow. You know, these words bring incredible rejoicing and comfort to me. I think of my dad, and I think that he's now rejoicing in heaven. That moment, Jesus, he could claim those words today. That's for me, Jesus. And that day he was with Jesus in paradise. See, we don't grieve like the world grieves because we have a hope that's conquered the grave. We've sung about it. And no matter what happens to us in this life, that hope will never be taken away from us. So we should rejoice. And as ever, maybe there are people here who aren't Christians, but today you've discovered what Jesus did for you so that you could be free from your sin and your shame and your guilt, that you could be freed from the victory of death because now you, have, you can have a king who has saved you. And this is maybe the start of your journey. The gospel is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. They appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And you might have had a revelation just like the criminal did on the cross this morning, how desperately you need Jesus. And that he showed his love for you by dying on a cross, a, a death you didn't deserve, and yet he loves you. And he wants you to hear those words. And if that's you, I would just encourage you. There's going to be a, a prayer that's going to come up on screen. It just says, Jesus, like the criminal, I recognize my sinful state and my great need for you. I'm sorry for the way I've lived my life and I receive your forgiveness. Jesus, I want to live my life for you. Come and fill me with your life and love, and, and love by your Holy Spirit. And church, why don't we, just so no one's saying this on their own, why don't we now just um, say this prayer together? And if, if there is someone who says this for the first prayer time to make Jesus your Savior, to make Jesus your King, then why don't you come and talk to me? I'll be up at the welcome point afterwards. Let's say this prayer together. Jesus, like the criminal, I recognize my sinful state and my great need for you. I'm sorry for the way I've lived my life 
and I receive your forgiveness. Jesus, I want to live my life for you. Come and fill me with your life and love by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do come and see me if that's the first time you've ever prayed that. That's a wonderful thing. And those words that Jesus speak are now for you. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise when you face your own death. Or maybe you've lost the wonder of the cross. The cross compels us to go out into this world in the love of God to offer the forgiveness of God, the gospel. You know, many of us don't have a problem believing that we're going to get to heaven. But a lot of us struggle with the power, belief that the gospel is the power of God to save anyone who believes. Alistair Begg said, whenever the church loses confidence in the truth, the power and the relevance of the gospel, it loses an ailing, compelling sense of mission. It has nothing to say. Maybe that's you this morning. You've just lost the wonder, the awe of what Jesus has done for you. And I'd encourage you as the, when the band come up, do you know what? That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you will receive power to be my witnesses. So if Jesus said we need power to be his witnesses, then we do. We need the Holy Spirit. And so if you need a fresh outpouring of the power of God through the Spirit of God so that you can go out to be his witnesses, then I, then I encourage you to come up. There's no judgment here. I struggle. I think a lot of you think it's You think, oh, yeah, all could do it. No. I get the fear. I get the trembles. I get the, what, what are people going to think of me? There he goes, that crazy guy. So if you need a fresh outpouring of the power to be his witnesses, then why not come up? But the last thing I just want to share and if the band can come up whilst I share this. You know, these times are not easy times. I reckon they're some of the hardest times we've faced for quite a while. Okay, they're nothing like the world wars. But there's just so many different things happening, pressures happening. Financial pressures, health pressures, relationship pressures. And it's not easy. And maybe... Just because of all that's happened, you've allowed anger into your heart at God. Maybe you're sitting and saying, well, oh, if God is such a great and powerful and loving God, why am I in this hellish mess today? Why is this happening in my life? Maybe you just need to come up. Just imagine yourself coming up to the cross where Jesus says, I love you. To humble yourself before the cross. And to look to him. And maybe you need to say forgiveness. Ask forgiveness. Or maybe you just need to ask for help. Please, we are all broken people. We all struggle. I think one of the, the biggest, um, just maybe problems of the evangelical church is we often talk about the victories we live in. But we don't often share just the failures. And we all fail, if we're honest. We're all broken people. That's why we need Jesus. And so coming up here and just saying help is okay. 
I think I say help every day. I'm weak, but you are strong. Would you come and fill me? So we're going to go back into a time of worship, and I just encourage you to um, just come up to receive what you need, whether that's power, whether that's just to come before the cross and have someone pray for you. And we had some words of knowledge, which I just want to share. So uh, one of the congregation felt this morning that uh, someone has pain in their right ankle, and God wants to do something in their lives. And it might not be the thing, the ankle might not be the problem, but they want to do something, and that's the way he's going to get you up. So it might be a man in their 40s or 50. So if that's you, you've got pain in your ankle, why don't you come up for prayer? Uh, a woman, right knee pain, to do something, worn cartilage, and uh, God wants to heal, so why don't you come up for that? And maybe someone who's really struggling uh, with a respiratory disease, uh, and just to come up and to just put yourself before the Father and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. We just want to provide opportunities for the Lord to move. So I'm going to pray, and then ministry team, you want to come up in twos, and then respond in the way that you feel the Holy Spirit leading you. And if you become a Christian this morning, you just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, come up, it would be wonderful. But let's stand. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we all need the cross. We're all like that, that second criminal. It's all by the grace of God. And we need you. We need your power. We need your forgiveness. We're all broken. But you're a wonderful Savior whose intention is always to have mercy. And Lord, if we've forgotten the wonder of the cross, would you restore that to us? If we have not asked for your power recently to be your witnesses, we pray that you would restore that. And Lord, just come to bring your healing, to bring your salvation, to bring your deliverance, bring your freedom. Come, Holy Spirit. So if ministry team, you want to come up now and in twos and just respond. Respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Respond to his love for you. Respond to his grace and mercy.